Hello, you're listening to the abridged version of Book Shambles. If you'd like to hear the full-length version of Book Shambles and also get loads of other extra treats and bits and pieces, then why not go to patreon.com slash bookshambles. Anyway, here's the abridged version with loads of really interesting things that were cut out. I mean, there's lots of interesting things you're still going to hear, but some of the things you're missing out on. Um, hello, welcome to Robin and Josie's Book Shambles. I'm doing the introduction, and if you know the podcast, you'll know that I don't really like doing the introduction. But today, I'm having the time of my life because <laughs> we're speaking with Jeff Dyer. You will actually, it's wise of me to do the introduction because I'm not in the first part of this podcast due to the fact that my daughter scribbled in crayon all over our television and scratched it irreparably. Um, and then was very upset. And then there was a, a large drama that needed to be uh, somewhat mitigated before I was able to leave the room. So the start of today's podcast is probably, I'm going to guess, a very smart and beautiful conversation between Robin and Jeff Dyer. And then I come in and I'm like, let me tell you some anecdotes. And on the whole, I think it's a lovely chat. Uh, if you listen via Patreon, you can listen to every single word. If you don't, fair enough but you could consider supporting our Patreon, Patreon, whatever you prefer, Patreon, because it um, there's all kinds of wonderful stuff. Robin, you know, one of the reasons I'm doing this intro is because Robin's busy making 25 other programs <laughs> right now uh, with various luminaries from the world. So, yeah, enjoy the show. And one extra little bit of admin or notice from me, producer Trent. On June 11, we are doing a live Book Shambles online as part of the More Than Words Literary Festival. Robin and Josie will be there, of course, and our special guest will be Michael Spicer. So check out our Twitter, at Cosmic Shambles, or the More Than Words Literary Festival website to find out how to get tickets to join us online for that. And final thing to mention is the Patreon that Josie mentions. The URL is patreon.com slash bookshambles. Jeff, the first thing I want to... Seesaw is a, is another fantastic collection of, of, of essays uh, about photography. And, you, and you've written so much uh, about photography and about those people that inspired you. And I wanted to start off because I, I think last time we didn't end up talking that much about John Berger. I think we merely might have briefly mentioned that you still don't like your first book. Because that, <laughs> yeah, that was a, yeah. and and I think when I mentioned that I had it, you almost oh well, we'll put it to a higher shelf and hide that <laughs> one. But but you know, in a lot of your work, the 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 love of the way that he seems to be the key figure that that did it sounds like a cliche, but opened your eyes that meant that you could see paintings and photography in a different way. Is that fair? Yes, absolutely. The the, the case. Uh, I mean, he had this great knack, whether he was writing about uh, paintings, photographs or anything, of just being able to get you with him right in front of them and then to be able to point out things to point things out to you. And you would just, uh, even if it seemed a quite boring picture, I always sort of think of this, of, you know, boring picture of men in roughs. I mean, how many, how many of those are there? And then he could managed to um, sort of bring out the, the, the story that is latent in, in, in the photograph. And also had this great ability, it's the most essential one for any writing on art, I think, to enable the reader to see the picture through his words, which of course is less of an issue now that there's the internet and you can summon up any image you want in seconds. But, uh, you know, back then, it was, uh, you know, it was really important that he was able to do that. And crucially, of course, he was, uh, he was doing it in a, in a language that was not at all academic, but which was the proper language of, uh, of lived experience. Although as soon as I say that, I realise I sound like I'm sort of evoking the ghost of Levis or something. But yeah, <laughs> uh, looking at paintings as part of, part of life, not as a kind of research, a dreary research project. Well, that what you've mentioned, in fact, just before we start recording this, I was saying that one of the problems I have sometimes is that I, I, I read a philosopher or, or read about an artist, but I don't know how to pronounce their name, so I can never talk about them for fear of social embarrassment. And it does seem to me there is still a problem with 
whether it's discussion of art or science, that you either have groups of people who in television are desperate to dumb it down and presume that the audience are idiots and will need a recap every five minutes, or you have another world, and I sometimes see this at some of the more highfalutin book festivals, where you get a sense that some in academia still want study of uh, philosophy and art to be something exclusive, to have a language that says this is not really for you. I mean, I think of the number of books that I buy about popular culture where I think, oh, I love this piece of popular culture, this would be a great book. And then I find myself trawling through this opaque language where all of the joy is, is it, it seems a desperate. So that seems to me that a lot of your writing is in, in quite a rare place which is that I don't think it is in any way exclusive and I don't think in any way it's it says to the reader I might need to explain this a little bit too long because I'm not expecting that much of you. Yeah you know this is so close to my heart and it again I mean uh, god I, I'm, I'm really not I'm, I'm on this show to uh, you know to hustle my own wares not just to not just to bang on about Berger but that's one of the first things that uh, struck me about reading him that so often there was exactly that uh, that division that you mentioned either um, you know yeah this book is for the general reader uh, in which case it's going to be all sort of dumbed down as you say or it's for a very small circle of initiates and that seemed to be almost a, a given really and Berger was the first person I read who completely did away with that so I think for example of his Picasso book where it's um, full of insights so that even somebody who's an expert on Picasso would be forced to uh, sort of go, hmm, God, I'd never thought of that before. But equally, somebody who'd never even seen a Picasso painting would be absorbed by it and, of course, would then quickly get on their bike or in their car and dash down to Tate Gallery to see some more. So I completely agree with you. And one thing that I've become so hostile to is a particular style of popular book, and you can almost you can almost see it coming from the subtitle, and it's that kind of jaunty tone. I'm going to talk about the, you know it's 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 just that jauntiness, um, and you can just see the kind of what I hate about that is I can see the calculation behind it that yes, with every element of jaunt they bring to this jauntiness, so the potential sales increase. But what I like to, to, to do, and it's again, I, mean, I got this from Berger, is that, yeah, you, you would develop a style which is appropriate to the subject and which is readable, but which doesn't, it doesn't have that sort of, yeah, it doesn't have that, that awful jauntiness, which I, which I can't bear. A jauntiness which rarely feels like the, an author's signature style, unless it's an author who is so completely absorbed the kind of thing of, you know, how to write a big selling book that they've become a, you know, they've become that person. So yeah, I like a, I like a book with a strong authorial signature to it. Um, now, we should mention, as you said, you're, you're here to sell your book. So let's talk about Seesaw, which is a, a fantastic collection of um, essays about photography and photographers and, and towards the end as well about the people who influenced you. Um, do you remember the first time, because you actually say in the book that you're not, you much prefer to look at photography sat on the couch than going mm. to an exhibition. Do you remember your first experience of kind of, of getting a sense that photography was art that it, it was you know that the, or indeed if, I suppose really your first experience because growing up in Cheltenham there's not you know I know there's one small gallery there but there's not you know there's not that much that is a, is immediately uh, available to you yeah but are, are we talking about photo uh, the actually no I suddenly realized I changed the question halfway through um the uh but I th that first experience I suppose of going ah oh, this is a world that I like this is a world that, that is drawn me in yeah, well, in several ways. I mean, I guess the first opening of any kind of visual consciousness would have been uh, super American superhero comics, I think, uh, which were kind of so sort of so wonderful and exciting. And then as I got older, I could see, oh, yeah, you know, there's elements of, uh, you know, there's elements of Michelangelo in the work of, of Jack Kirby or, or, or whatever. And then, I mean, the next really important phase, I think, we, we did, um, we had art classes at school, but that was always really making art. And it was always, you know, after double physics, which was just so 
you know, hard to, to get through if you'll allow a, a non-scientist to sort of say that. Then we'd have the Do art you know what? Class. Most scientists will actually say, I, I, I was talking to Carlo Rovelli and he was mm. saying, you know, his annoyance at what secondary school science is when there are all of these incredible, beautiful ideas and you're actually just being told, here is an equation and here is a pendulum. And it's <laughs> yeah. quite hard to get excited sometimes <laughs> about those things. Yeah, so after after double physics, then there'd be double art, which was great because that was an hour and a half of mucking about. Um, but there wasn't really a, a sort of art history uh, component to that. So I guess in a way that's not at all atypical for somebody of my age, I think the next two sort of things after that would be LP covers. So, you know, it's really difficult still for me to accept that Roger Dean does not belong in the... Uh, you know, in the pantheon of, of great artists. And then more seriously after that, my real uh, education in art history, I think was the covers of, of, of Penguin books, uh, Penguin classics, but particularly Penguin modern classics. And still we were talking about going to galleries. And I still think now that I get, ne I never get a greater thrill in a gallery than when I go and I realize, oh yeah, that's the picture that was on the cover of Le Grand Moine or, or whatever it might be. And those Penguin modern classics, which on the back cover, they give you the, the name of the art. This is a detail from, you know, Monet or whatever. And it would always be the cover designed by Germano Facchetti. And I think that guy played such a huge part in the sort of evolving consciousness of a, of a whole generation's awareness of, of art. So I like looking at books of photographs on my sofa now but right from the start then it was my education in art was part of my you know developing love affair with with reading books see that's great because i was just looking before this at the the copy of sartre's nausea which has i yeah, forget which yeah. dali painting is on it exactly. and, it, and it's and it's and, and I know Sarah Bakewell as well. It's like that's the copy she needs to read almost because that's the first one she had. And as you said, it has. It's not just an entry into the ideas in the book. It's like I was thinking of photography-wise. I think Bill um, Brand was is Brand or Brandt, Brand or Brand. You see, we're hitting that again. Is it Bill yeah. Brand? I think Brand. Yeah, that's good. The um, I think I was introduced to him reading uh, Penguin Modern Classic of Hangover Square which of course is perfect like and, and it's yeah, like yeah. and so it was my first patrick hamilton and at the same time we also want to but who's that photographer as well to have that that entry into two worlds it's so great and then oh sorry no yeah. i just wanted to i was going to join straight in Hi, also it, it's the thing i wanted to say was for me i have some of the the 60s uh i have some of my mum's books from the 60s and the the painting or the image on the cover is so linked for me to the work to the um to the book itself that i feel like it's sort of become a part of it just full time yeah you know the the and the the, the but the picture on the cover becomes the kind of whole concentrated memory of the book yeah and it's so nice the way that so you know you might so i remember thinking oh yeah i really like the, this uh sort of misty uh, autumnal twilight scene on the cover of uh, The Mystery of Edwin Drood. And then, you know, I'd get a copy of um, The Turn of the Screw by Henry James, and I think, oh, that looks similar. And it turns out, oh, same artist. And that's how I became interested in the work of, uh, you know, Atkinson Grimshaw, that painter of the great kind of Victorian twilight. So, yeah, it was a, it was that lovely... I mean, as, you were, as we were talking about sort of physics and, and double physics at school, it's uh, there's so much to be said for an accidental education, isn't there? Mm. And I think Marvel Comics is, you're right, that bit which is that level of curiosity, which means you do want to find the connections. So that's the bit that you, you haven't gone into it because you go, I love art and therefore I'm going to see art. You, you start, you're looking at the cover and then that connection might come the next day or the next week or the next month or wherever it is. And I think that makes it so much more kind of feverish in terms of the delight mm. of it. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, there's, a, uh, I think, something special. There's never anything onerous at all about stuff that you discover for yourself outside of the classroom, even though, of course, what's gone on in the classroom has helped you to develop the capacity to, to explore and discover these things. So in, that's, I mean, I think that's a, a big 
again one of those kind of problems which is very often what exists in the classroom seems to be disconnected from life and I, it, it's, I mean it's interesting when you suddenly say that of course art class was was always doing art but it was never very I mean certainly in my education I don't remember ever really learning about artists or inspirations or I mean it, it's something that I always think is a great pity in terms of a lot of the, the education system which is the overlap which doesn't occur so that bit that maybe at school you're reading Frankenstein but you're not learning necessarily about the science and the philosophy that was around it which meant that there was a story that was forming in Mary Shelley's head um, or you know for the there's a, there's a great book um, by a guy called John Higgs called Stranger Than uh, We Can Imagine which is about how the 20th century is the loss of the centre it's the final loss you know we're no longer the centre of the universe obviously uh, we're no longer a special animal and then quantum physics comes along and it turns out there's no certainty anymore everything mm -hmm. is probability and that and and he writes so beautifully about the reaction of art to that and when you look oh. at you know whether it's the surrealist whether it's the dardarist reaction to war all of these different things which become which are, are separate to history so often and separate to science and separate to all the other knowledge each bit of knowledge exists is not connected um let we again we come back to that did did you read years ago the great john berger essay the moment of cubism where he locates uh, the development of cubism in the context of all these other uh, all these other things uh, going on uh, in the world of you know science and uh, the world at large Oh, I'm going to have to read that because that is it's because well, that changes all of those it's like I I went off surrealism because I think in the 80s it was everywhere it was in every cream egg advert. It was kind of that. And then I went to it in one of the Scottish National Galleries in Edinburgh. Uh -huh. They had this fantastic exhibition and included like Desmond Morris, who I'd never known Desmond Morris before he started getting to Naked Apes and all that stuff. He'd been a, a, a enfant terrible surrealist painter. Like Holy in his really? late. Yeah. Goodness me. Wow. And, and so, and then I looked at this Magritte and I was like, suddenly it stopped being something that was on a table mat or an advert for something and it became connected to all these ideas it wasn't just someone going i've had a bit of a mad idea actually <laughs> this is, it's interesting to me to think about surrealism being really everywhere in the 80s because it feels like such a different time to like the 20s and 30s you know in the 20s and 30s the what surrealism was as far as i feel i know was like this angry visceral reaction this like almost like nihilistic anger at the first world war and at like society as a whole and then you think in the 80s it was like yuppies being yeah. i don't know it's just so funny to me it seems so out, out of place but of course then they could sort of defang it and use it for co commodities i don't yeah, know yeah you're right it really was everywhere wasn't it yeah. Hey, drink Cronenberg. It makes clocks wobbly. I'm sure that wasn't the point behind it. I remember reading the Surrealist Manifesto when I was in my early 20s and being really like, didn't know what to do with it. Because I was like, oh, this I thought it, I thought it was just like, I'll take a horse and I'll put it in a hat. You know, yeah. I didn't yeah. realize <laughs> that there was all this stuff behind it that was so serious and intense, you know. I, I wondered in terms of the photograph because i i there, there was something a while ago i was chatting to a, a friend of mine he says that there was a point when he was a child that he looked in a photograph and he started to think it was an old one of his, his relatives from from the beginning of the 20th century and he thought do they know they're dead which mm -hmm. is something that i find really interesting when you look at photographs is sometimes i look at old photographs and maybe people that i knew and the idea that a photograph though it is unchanging somehow is attached to the life of those people because i i've the, the, that spookiness that comes nothing carries a ghost i think with such tangibility as a, a photograph yeah and uh you know one of the we were talking right at the beginning beginning about the people who got me into photography so it was the big three it was berger who we talked about susan sontag and roland bart and i think it was bart who really uh addresses that thing of the strange tense that we get in uh, particularly in 19th century photographs which is this you know he is dead and he is going to die he says of the subjects of, of, of photographs and of course we feel that really strongly as soon as we see a picture of I don't know somebody 
queuing up to enlist or in their uniform heading off to the you know to to, to the first world war in 1914 so yeah it is a it is a, a ghostly uh, ghostly sort of thing like that and then also you get that and i mean i keep coming back always to these things i learned early on when i got interested in photography the way that you know the weird way that those busy crowded bustling cities of dickens in photographs you know they appear so empty because the the, it, the long exposure speeds eliminate completely all move, fast moving things so that the city becomes deserted but quite often in photographs from the late 19th century okay of course so sort of you know fast moving things where if somebody's running by they'll be uh, they'll, they'll just be completely gone, but they'll be full of ghosts of people moving sufficiently slowly that they're there, just these transparent figures. And I think that's why you get this idea that in photography, you get the, uh, you know, the discovery, it's a, the Walter Benjamin idea, the discovery of the optical unconscious, that all of these people who are gone are sort of, uh, are still there. And, you know, that was the that that seems to me so central to what a what a photograph is, in that you you have a picture of your granddad or whatever who's 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 no longer there but but still present. It's at that passing of time because I was, I was I can't remember who you which was it Bart who who said about that a picture doesn't tell a story. You mentioned it in your introduction that because that single frame can't tell you the can't tell you a story. Oh, but that's that, a... that, sorry. Sorry, that's actually Gary Winogrand, who was so insistent that a, a photograph has no narrative ability. So he says, you know, you just can't tell from a picture whether somebody is taking a hat off their head or on, on onto their, or putting it on their head. But that's such neat because, I mean, to me, that is perhaps one of the reasons that I am so drawn to photography is because it doesn't have a definite story. Mm. It means that, like, you know, we, we talk about someone like Diane Arbus. Whenever you see some of those incredible couples, like mm -hmm. that family that I think are on their way to Coney Island or whatever, mm -hmm. and one of the children's disabled, and this kind of, and the mother looks kind of very much like a, you know, a, a, a kind of dime store version of Elizabeth Taylor. And mm. it's got so yeah. much that you, and that's the thing is it, that you can read a thousand stories into what's just happened and what's about to happen. Oh, yeah. Uh, the fact that you can't tell from that moment, you know, whether, you know, as Winogrand says, well, look, the fact that the photograph has no narrative ability, that coexists with this ignore, in fact, leads to this enormous narrative potential. Uh, so with some photographs, they show a minute, but they seem to almost uh, in insist that you can, you, you, that you think about or conceive of what happens either side of that fraction of a second. Uh, and quite often, I mean, that can that gets translated into narrative, whereby you start thinking about what happens just to the just to the left of the of the screen, which we can say well, the frame, sorry, excuse me, which is what happened, you know, just a moment before, and then what happens to the right of the the frame, uh, which is what what is going to go on to happen next, and even there's this idea that you know some of the best photographs of even non-moving things faces. Okay, that the exposure time is well in in the nineteenth century, uh, the exposure time was long, so people would have their heads clamped, you know, to make sure they didn't move. But as somebody said, you know, the whole experience of going to have this photograph taken encouraged people to sort of concentrate their whole life, you know, their whole being into that extended experience of the picture being taken. But even when the exposure time is reduced to just, I don't know, you know, 125th of a second, still sometimes in some pictures you feel, oh yeah, I'm seeing somebody's whole life compressed into that, uh, into that thing. And then, you know, it gets, it gets sort of taken further where some uh, Arbus, for example, was convinced that, uh, you know, uh, a photograph could tell somebody's future. So she said, you know, she was with great regret that she hadn't photographed Hemingway or, uh, or Marilyn Monroe, because she said, you know, she said, God, I, you know, because I'm sure that the suicide, the eventual suicide was there in their faces. It, it, it could be seen, which then, of course, throws up this other sort of interesting thing about photographs whereby, okay, you know, it's two people using the same camera, the same thing. Wow, how strange that the results should be different. 
And so in that case, you get this in the Arbus thing, you know, Arbus famously, you know, Arbus kills herself. So you get this weird thing where the people you're photographing serve as a kind of mirror of what's going on in the in the psyche of the photographer herself. It feels so supernatural and so mystic. It's so funny to me, like the fact that it's such, even though we're talking about 200 years, it's such a modern mechanical object made from metals and plastics and things like that. And yet how much association it feels that it has with like ghosts and allowing yourself to believe in spiritual things. It, it's such an interesting object in that way because TVs aren't like that. Radios aren't yeah. like that. Yeah, you're absolutely right. And especially, I mean, I wonder if that's being lost now because I think one of the most uh, magical or uh, sort of strange processes in photography would be that thing, okay, the, 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 the film is, uh, you know, the film is uh, developed. But that thing where you put the you put you put it in the in the tray and the picture emerges slowly mm. from the developing tray and of course that's used in a you know as a sort of basis for the thriller in uh, Antonioni's blow up. But yeah, there you get it. You know, out of the is, darkness, out of the darkness, and then you know, as Bart again in one of his great um, formulations says, you know, that rather what is it? He says that rather scary thing that is there in every photograph the return of the dead. But I think that's one of, people are always talking about, you know, what changes the digital is, is, is uh, you know, is, is making. And I think some of that mystical, or, uh, or, or this is the key word, that alchemical, you know, that, 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 that weird chemistry of the uh, supernatural chemistry of the old style of doing photographs, that is, that is uh, surely being lost. And we, you know, we, even we who didn't, people who just do, did photographs sort of casually, you know, the, the Polaroid always had a, a, an element of that, didn't it? As you would wave it and just, uh, and see this kind of, you know, um, see this often pornographic image re-emerging, re, re you know, uh, in, in, in all its weird ghostliness. Yeah, yeah. What's funny about Polaroids is, you know what you've just taken a photo of, and yet each time it feels as if it could be a complete surprise. You know, yeah. it never feels like, well, I know what it's going to be. It's always like, oh, let's see. And that was part of the, uh, uh, you know, real excitement for, uh, uh, for photographers that however uh, careful you were and however astute and clever and skilled and all the rest of it, you never knew quite what you, you never knew quite what you'd got. You know, so this is one of the, the you know, Winogrand is such a sort of huge figure for me. But, you know, he, I mean, my book about Winogrand was called The Street Philosophy of Gary Winogrand. And there was nobody who had, who was less qualified to enroll in any kind of uh, philosophy course. But he had this great ability, I think, of just formulating, um, you know, philosophical things. So he'd said, you know, you know, the reason I photo famously, the reason I photograph is to see what a thing looks like photographed. Wow, I mean, it's just a, it's a very profound thing to say. And then the weird tragedy or parable of Winogrand's life is the person who said that ended up becoming so obsessed with taking photographs that as, you know, as is well known, he first of all abandoned doing exhibition prints and then doing studio prints then doing contact sheets, then with de developing. So at the end of it, so he had ended up not seeing a load of the stuff. And I think, I can't remember, I mean, the statistics are staggering. There's something like a third of a million exposures that he'd uh, barely, barely either not seen at all, uh, not developed, just not seen. So yeah, he, uh, he fell victim to his own, uh, to, yeah, he, he fell victim to his own kind of logic really. That feels very modern if you think about people with their camera phones taking thousands of photographs that they never re-examine. It feels yeah. like he's, he's a prophet. He's yeah, doing exactly. something. As people said, he was like a, a kind of one man, by the end of his life, it was like a one man Google streetcar. You know, yeah, <laughs> a, a kind of digital photographer in the age of analog when there was an element of scarcity. But yeah, he just, uh, he just went completely kind of crazy with, with taking pictures and the pictures which have all now been uh, exposed and developed loads of the pictures because you know they they exert this enormous fascination for us you know what's going to be there in the pharaoh's tomb 
well, I've been into the Pharaoh's tomb, like many people, and everybody has a similar experience of basically being defeated by it, because so many of the pictures at this archive in, uh, in Tucson, Arizona, they're just pictures of nothing. <laughs> nice. It's, but that, well, that makes me... I was thinking of... Uh, actually, no, I'm going to ask you, and then we're going to come back to this, because something that from a while ago, just that bit of the loss of error seems to be quite an important mm. part of the... I went to, I can't remember his name now, an Australian photographer had an exhibition in Melbourne. And as well as his own photography, he had lots of things. He collected, for instance, photographs where people had got their shadow in it. Oh, so yeah. there was a whole wall of people where the shadow had become the dominant thing and they were trying to take a picture of the bird <laughs> bath or whatever. And then yeah. he had a huge collection of, of photographs where people had got their finger in front of the lens. And then he had <laughs> photographs where people had cut something out from them or scratched oh, yeah. them out. And you had to, and again, you'd read in a story that might be an anger there. That's an ex-boyfriend or that's been cut out for some kind of collage or whatever it is. But he, he, you know, his, he loved collecting what were normally photographic errors, whereas, of course, all of those now are just deleted, aren't they? Yes, it, it, yes, it, it, exactly. Yeah, yeah, you, yeah, you can, you, you, you can, yeah, you fix it. You, yeah, so the common sight now is that thing of, uh, you know, seeing sort of photographers gathered, get, get gathered around and all doing that thing called chimping, you know, whereby, you know, this phrase, you invert the camera to see what you've got. So they're all there in this sort of posture of, <laughs> Of chimps, but before, yeah, you would, uh, you would just, you just, you just didn't know what you'd got, and you know, in the case of you know Robert Kappa's D-Day pictures, you know, yeah, there were, you know, uh, for, there's all sorts of different versions of that story, but only what twelve pictures or something out of, out of how many, however many reels he shot, and they managed to, in some way, you feel, yeah, they're very defective in all sorts of ways, but maybe the uh, the errors of uh, whatever it was, lent a kind of drama and, or, and an authenticity to the scene that maybe a completely technically perfect image wouldn't have wouldn't have managed. I wondered about as well. You you wrote a very early piece about Vivian Mayer, uh, and yeah. who then which is in the book, and then obviously she became far better known when the movie came out. And, and this, but I remember when I watched the movie and the kind of the the comment by the guy who discovered a lot of those photos was that every single one seemed to be so perfect in the way and, and i wondered now just because you're talking about that bit of actually going into the pharaoh's tomb and going oh oh dear and i mean vivian mayer is so, that that thing of finding out as you say a photographer who had no influence because no one knew she existed as a photographer mm. in fact very few people even knew she existed it seems <laughs> yeah, and, and yeah. it's but what would you say now in, in, in the years since that piece is written and there's been you know more books out about that ability for her to compose a, 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 a shot? And was that actually, is that somewhat exaggerated in the, in the film? Yeah, well, uh, I, don't, I haven't followed uh, the Vivian Meyer story, which is so huge. But one of the, you know, the, one of the intriguing things is that, uh, you know, how much, uh, how much of the history of photography is there contained in her picture? So you're always saying, oh yeah, God, that looks like a picture by X or Y. And there's this incredibly highly, you know, there's nothing sort of, uh, it, she doesn't seem like some sort of amateur who just happened to take some, uh, good, some, some good pictures. It seems there's a properly developed and informed kind of photographic, uh, photographic consciousness there. I think the really interesting thing for me about photography is, I mean, let's let's start with literature, you know, uh, just occasionally the, you know, the canon is always being re-examined in different ways, but it's pretty, pretty obdurate, really. And it's it's not that easy to 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 get in as a major figure of the 1930s, uh, you know, retrospectively. It's, you know, it's pretty still pretty, it's still sort of still very much a one in one out policy and nobody <laughs> really wants to leave, of course, for obvious reasons. But the, the history of photography is constantly being rewritten as the works of people like Vivian Meyer or somebody else who's uh, sort of uh, exhum exhumation I was involved in, William Gedney. People are constantly getting reinserted into the pantheon, especially in this crucial area of colour photography. And the orthodoxy is that, yeah, you know, uh, respectable colour photography gets going with William Eggleston's show at, at MoMA in the 1970s. And the history of colour photography is 
all the time getting rewritten as, rewritten as it turns out, oh yeah, God, X was doing it before then, Y was doing it. So it's a, I really like the way, maybe it's because it's something that um, was only taken very seriously relatively recently. But yeah, the history of photography seems to be very amenable, receptive to being rewritten and to people getting uh, belatedly de uh, uh, discovered, and as has happened with Meyer, retrospectively ins inserted into the, the canon or the pantheon or the tradition, whatever you want to call it. Do you think oh, it means? Oh, we both took a well, break. Well, I was going to say something like, <laughs> "Do you think it means something about sense of humour?" Because I feel like even someone like Diane Arbus, who I think of as quite serious and quite intense, I also think of her as being very wry and. And same with them, Vivian Myatt, like, I feel like, maybe it's a silly thing to say. I was just thinking about what I feel with relation to like the canon of literature and how seriously it's always taken itself. And maybe it's a case of people sort of being more open, but then maybe that's just a silly theory. So it's yeah, probably- I, I don't know, because I mean, I mean but I, I mean, I, I'm with you on Arbus, except I, I, instead of saying she was wry, I mean, I think Vivian Meyer is quite wry or somebody like Helen Levitt could be wry. I mean, Diane Arbus, I think she's hysterical, I mean, really in, in both senses of the word, hysterically funny mm. and kind of, you know, on the brink of there's a kind of madness bubbling away there. And what, you know, I mean, the things uh, she says about her photographs are just, just sort of, oh, things she says about everything, you know, when she says something like growing up because her dad, you know, owned that big, uh, you know, department store. What is it? She said, I felt like some Transylvanian princess in that store and the kingdom was obscene. You know, it's just, it's wonderful. The, yeah, just, yeah. So, yeah, a uh, lot of, I don't know. I mean, it's, uh, I, I'm not sure it's a sense of humour thing. And also, it's funny that I mean, it's interesting, this idea of humour in photographs and, uh, you know, uh, how long the joke, I mean, Winogrand is incredibly funny, not just because there are jokes in the way that there are Elia Erwitt jokes, you know, there are those pun visual puns that we get in Elia Erwitt. But I think, you know, for somebody like me, who is really, you know, I just, you know, I just, I'm so sort of fascinated by the world of the humanness where this, you know, it seems to me that a sense of humour isn't just about jokes, it really is a whole philosophical relation to the world, which we, you know, one of our, it's one of our great evolutionary achievements in Britain that we've managed that, you know, so different to, uh, to, to, to here, in, uh, here, in, here in Los Angeles. But anyway, that's, that's a different <laughs> It's it's interesting thinking about that the you know, the the humour or the, one of my favourite Diane Arbus pictures is one which has some joy in it, which is the boy in Central Park oh, with the yeah. little toy grenade, you know that, that. Yeah. But yeah. what interests me about that is that in the big exhibition that was done, whatever, probably fifteen years ago now, mm -hmm. and it included a lot of proof sheets as well. Yeah, yeah. So you see that that is very much a one-off look. The mm. rest of them are him very larking around in an almost balletic way and then you suddenly get this rictus grin yeah and that's what i think is such a pity in a lot of exhibitions i mean it could include it in art as well i love it when sometimes they show an exhibition where they include people's canvases that went awry because mm. otherwise you only ever see the perfect choice that because to me that that's part of the the joy when you do get to see that in photography where someone says this was the photo I chose, but these were all the other expressions of this person, and they were not what I wanted. Yeah, and uh, Arbus, in various ways, had this great ability to goad people into giving her uh, what she wanted. And I say goad in that case, I don't know if, you know, sometimes it was maybe necessary to provoke people, but more she was able to sort of seduce herself into a uh, so certain situations uh, wasn't she but yeah i mean that's uh yeah there's there's so many examples we can think of of yeah the 10 surrounding pictures are not that not that interesting and there, I mean, that's such a classic example robin of that one yeah that is that is the one that that, that serves her purposes when you were putting the book together are, are there any essays that didn't make it in because you went oh my god i totally disagree with myself now this is not 
Yeah, do you know, I mean, not so much for this book, which is uh, essays on photography from the last 10 years. And after writing that book, The Ongoing Moment, which came out in 2004 or whatever, after that, I really did feel I knew quite a bit about photography. But if I ever put together the completely, you know, the complete, the collected works on photography, then a lot of the early essays on photography from that collection, Anglo-English Attitudes, they certainly wouldn't make it. Uh, they they certainly wouldn't make the cut now simply because uh, you know I just didn't didn't really know what I was. It's obvious to me now I didn't know what I was talking about. But I I think in the last ten years I have known what I was talking about. <laughs> I'm looking forward to the interview we do in 2031. By then by then I won't even be able to remember what what. what, what I was, yeah. You can just have a very breezy attitude towards it all. Like it was probably great. It was, yeah, it was all marvelous. Yeah. <laughs> that would see that would be a nice place to be. I think just sort of floating on a very pleasant fog. Well, yeah, um, maybe. So what 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 has changed then? Do you th is it just the build up of knowledge since the ongoing moment that is. Is there something? Are there any particular things where you think I do? You you you've you've found a way of of looking at a picture where you think uh, there's there's fewer ways that you can be scuppered, if that's the oh, right way. No, I, I really think it's just knowledge, actually. I mean, but there's still. I mean, so I really do feel I've got quite a good knowledge of the, the history of photography. Nothing like the history of photography that Martin Parr has. You know, Martin Parr has a uh, uh, you know, he has a, a great knowledge of the history of British photography. Huh. But he also has a great knowledge of the history of Japanese photography. He's got a history. He just knows everything about photography. So for my own, you know, I've got a, I've got a reasonable knowledge of that. But I still don't have much of an understanding of the technical things of, uh, of, of photography. But that's, uh, that doesn't bother me so much. So it's mainly, it's mainly the knowledge thing that I think that I'm more comfortable comfortable with but then you know that goes hand in hand with the evolution of somebody's any writer's style so one of the reasons that I disown that early boring book about John Berger which I had to because I'm teaching a course at, at the university here about Berger I had to I had to reread that book and it's quite it's got it's quite useful as a reservoir of sort of research but as I was reading it I kept thinking where am I in this book you know what you know, there's just no sign of it being by me. It could, uh, and I think as I've got, as I, you know, I'm spending time writing. I think I've got a particular or a particular sort of way way of writing, which is this thing that it's, um, oh, it's just got this this sort of back and forth between jokes and seriousness, and quite often even the serious points are jokes, and even the jokes are serious, and that is what I, so that's my particular kind of, um, it's not, and it, crucially, it's not just a style thing, it's a whole, it's a whole kind of, yeah, it's a whole, it's an entire consciousness, I would say, uh, and I feel very comfortable in my, in, in, in my skin in, in, in that regard. Hello, sorry to disturb the conversation. Just to say, you are listening to the abridged version of Josie and Robin's book shambles. If you'd like to hear the full version, then you can support us via Patreon and get all of the other bits of tittle tattle that dropped out of our mouth. On a final photograph, who, which photographer, or in fact, I can broaden it out to any artist, really. Do you see? Do you feel you've had the longest relationship with, in terms of perhaps also the most changing relationship? Someone who you, as you return to their work, sometimes you might think, "Oh, do you know what? I really didn't understand what I was." And now, and who do you feel most entangled with? Oh, do you know? It's I mean, maybe I mean I think it would probably be with regard to to music. I think. Um... Actually, just no. There's just so many, there's so so many things, Robin, like that. I mean, um, it's difficult to say because this new book deals with Beethoven and Turner uh, largely, and so they're very much in my my head at the moment. But yeah, it's a, there's a, just a, a lot of people in photography. I don't know really. I mean, I do. I mean, Winogrand, I've been interested in for a long while, and I do. I, I still I find him utterly in, inexhaustible. It's interesting. Lot of people. Sorry, go on. No, no, I, I think I was, I was, 
inadequately invading, uh, evade, trying to evade the question there. The, uh, yeah, we saw through you. We, in 2031, you won't have those tricks up your sleeve, I'll tell you that much now. The, um, You'll be rinsed, absolutely rinsed. I, that bit that the older... Because I, I, I love that bit when you realise how... Like last night I watched Paris, Texas that I haven't watched for a while. Wow. And at 52, Paris, Texas is, of course, a different film to the film that I watched when I was 40. And it's a different oh, how film was it to the film 52? I watched. It was great. It was the best was it? it's ever been. I really... Yeah. And I, I think... Oh, I had a completely oh, different experience a couple of years ago in Berlin when we saw uh, Wings Over Berlin, open air, a film that really meant a, a, a lot to me. And I found it absolutely insufferable this time around. <laughs> See, I, I, I like his road movies most, whether they're German or American. I'm a big road movie fan. And this one I just really... And I just watched Harry Dean Stanton in Lucky as well. Have you seen Lucky? I haven't, but I do like... He, yeah, I, I, I wonder if I could risk seeing... Paris, Texas again. No, I mean, this, the Rai Kuda score does an awful lot of the work, doesn't it? Well, that's what I... I, I, I definitely thought that when I first saw it when I was, like, 16 or whatever. And now, maybe because it's so... It was the score of the 80s, wasn't it? It, <laughs> yeah, was, yeah. it, was, that, it was like, you know, Michael Nyman's The Piano or or the a- Amelie, wasn't it? Oh, we're having yeah, a lovely yeah. party, actually. The wine's great. We must put on <laughs> Rai Kuda's uh, Paris, Texas soundtrack. It was that kind of thing, wasn't it? But it's because the other film I watched, I watched Exorcist Three because I've just done a thing about that, and that has, which is an amazingly underrated film. But then if we, oh. it always makes me think of oh god, I always forget his name, which is so annoying. Uh, Manchester by the Sea is it Kenneth Lonergan? Oh, um, What's his name? Yeah, Kenneth Lonergan. Uh, yeah. Is Some, something anyway, Lonergan? I know, know who you mean. Yeah. But Manchester by the Sea is a film that is so sad. And yet is full of little daft physical gags and little awkward moments that are humorous, which and I always think of it as very wonderful because it's brave enough to be true to life, like brave enough to have people literally taking a stretcher away and not being able to get it onto the ambulance. Yeah, yeah, got you. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's yeah, I love that American writer, Joy Williams, you know, her stories, which are just so awful what she depicts and um, um, and so hilarious at exactly the same time. Mm. It's yeah, an incredible trick, isn't it? I mean, it's more than a trick. Oh, to, to basically yeah. go, life is really absurd, and here is some tragedy, and here is someone, as they're about to put the, the casket in the ground, treading in dog shit. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that, yeah. That, that bit where you just go, and it's all, yeah. and the tragedy remains as tragic, and the comedy is as. Sorry, is we've, got, we've gone way off Jeff. your book. Yeah, no, but that's yeah. what you were saying, you know, just five minutes ago when you were talking about humour and humour being true and not true and funny and not funny at the same time. And that's it, isn't it? Oh, yeah. Absolutely. Abs- yeah, that seems to me just such a sort of, yeah, core thing. Yeah. Mm. Oh, th- sorry. Yeah, we. I, I've taken... I'm so sorry tangents, I missed the but... start of this. I wish I hadn't. Well, um... do you know what? The setup would have explained the denouement we just did. <laughs> it's an amazing denouement. But... Um... <laughs> Seesaw is out now. Oh. It's from Canongate, uh, who the best. about 50% of our authors are, <laughs> that we talk to of Canongate. It's uh, our, our favourite publisher. Also, um, I would like to, because we were talking about the spiritual power of photographs and the power of photographs to hold the dead, uh, recommend the Pixar film Coco, because my daughter's been watching it nearly every day this week, and it's about um, a Mexican family and about putting a photo on an offender and what it means, and just feel like it's vaguely relevant and quite a light-hearted fun thing to be watching alongside this chat. And does Raikuda do the soundtrack? (laughs) Yes, I think it's a Raikuda soundtrack. Yeah, yeah. I have to say, one of the reasons people need to buy this book, I've never seen, I don't know anything about the work, and again, I'm going to mispronounce um, Philip Lorca de Corcia, is it? Uh, Oh, Philip Lorca de Corcia, yeah. yeah. Another of these uh, kind of guys, a bit like... um, uh, Winogrand, it just comes out with these kind of great things, you know, like when he says, you know, photography is a foreign language, everyone thinks they can speak. It just tosses <laughs> off these great kind of just, oh, wow, that's that's cool, yeah. But it's worth yeah. buying the book for his photo of two dogs watching pornography. Yes, that is a great... <laughs> Which is <laughs> the, the, the Hamptons 2008 from the series East of Eden. Yeah, and I yeah. remember just turning the page and going, yeah, that's that's captured quite a lot, hasn't it? That's the, um, <laughs> 
Because who's the yeah, guy who yeah. does all those photos of his dog in? I, I saw an exhibition in New Zealand, but he's an American artist. It's not. It's William. Oh, uh, William. Oh, uh, is it William Wegman? That's it. Yes. Yeah, yeah. I never quite got that. You know, when you don't get, I, I know it's. A, I'm, I'm sure it's. Uh, it just didn't click for me, and I don't know why. I just don't get it. It's like that. I know exactly what you mean. It's that thing. Whenever you see a car go by with a dog with its head out of the window, it's great. And it's always just thing and it always improves your day. And then I saw a book the other day called something like Dogs in Cars. And it kind of, it was just, you know, that was the end of it, really. You don't need, you don't want a whole book of this stuff. You just want it to be this incidental thing that, that happens. You don't want the omnibus edition of Dogs in Cars. So yeah, mm-hmm. I feel Wegman is, is he's working a very limited hustle actually. Of course, that could be a really dark book. Here are some dogs that were left in cars with the windows, with the uh, windows on. Shut. This yeah, is really yeah. this. This is not the fun. Book we're not we were having that. For it at all. <laughs> we're not having that. I'm afraid. <laughs> but I think that's quite a, a modern sadness. You know, when you think about like memes and about things becoming a viral thing for about a day, and so you know someone finds a cup on a bus stop then literally everyone on earth has looked literally everywhere and found literally every cup on bus stops yeah, yeah. and then everyone is bored of cups on bus stops and that is done Lord. and it's like a puzzle that's been completed and it's sort of yeah it's it yeah it's completing a puzzle rather than knowing a puzzle exists which is kind of sad <laughs> anyway seesaw looking at photographs <laughs> where you can look there's only one picture of dogs looking at pornography and just lots of words around it which are really worth buying the book for those words as well as i said (laughs) just the promise of the because you also can't see the dog's faces so you're uncertain about their relationship with the pornography (laughs) so you can that's for the dog's privacy that that's what they demanded (laughs) before they would sign the release <laughs> thanks very much, Jeff. Thanks, so, thanks much. so much. Thank you both. Yeah, that's it's always a always a pleasure. Yeah. So see you again soon. I hope. Okay. Yeah. Bye. Have a lovely time. Twenty thirty one. Yeah. yeah. Well, for sure. That's in the diary. But yeah. Yeah. yeah okay. Obviously, yeah. Mine too. Thank you very much for listening. Thank you to Jeff for joining us. Seesaw is out now. Don't forget to like and subscribe and uh, leave five star ratings and positive reviews on. Apple Podcasts and Spotify and wherever you listen to Book Shambles, patreon.com slash bookshambles is the website to subscribe to the show to get extra goodies like the Tips for Existence and Uncanny Hour documentary series, extended episodes of Book Shambles as well, and lots of extra uh, behind-the-scenes stuff as well is available uh, on different tiers of the Patreon. For example, this week uh, we've put up an extended conversation that was cut out of one of the Uncanny Hour episodes, which is Robin and Stuart Lee talking about the joy of going to the cinema in the 80s and how Stu once travelled to Paris just to see a director's cut of an Italian Western. Patreon.com slash bookshambles. Have a great week. Stay safe. And we'll be back with a new episode next week. This podcast is part of the Cosmic Shambles Network. Josie Robbins' Book Shambles was produced by Trent Burton of Trunkman Productions.